0: Your patience should has to, by definition, it's going to have to extend as far as the limit of your opt, your alternate options. You know, when you look at the rotation, if you, you know, you you got to give people a few times through. And on the offensive side, again, what are the options? So you don't have an alternative for many of your choices.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closets by Design. A long-awaited, and I appreciate everybody who reached out to me, return of the best podcast in baseball. It's been a very curious spring. So many of the best parts about spring were just removed from this spring, and uh, I'm flattered to hear some people think that that includes the best podcast in baseball. One of the things that this spring did include, though, was video reports with my good friend at KMOX, Kevin Wheeler. And so to return the favor, Kevin, welcome to uh, BPIB's Opening day return here. First, first episode of a new season, and I'm glad to uh, be able to invite you to be a part of it.
0: Well, thank you, man. And it's it's always good too for guests to like set the bar low initially. Then everything after that is going to be a wild success because it's going to look better. So I have I'm I'm happy to be uh, the low baseline so that everybody else can be excited about future guests.
1: All right. So who are you (laughs) going to have on your video that improves from me?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, like for example. Uh, for opening day, we're gonna have Ozzy Smith. Um, okay. for opening day we're gonna have John Mosellock. Um and a few I think there's a few others that are creeping in there. Uh Dave Glover's gonna be a part of it, not on the not on the video side, but on the radio side, uh for the first time now that he's with us at Camelot. So nice. I mean I guess uh I guess it works both ways on that, right?
1: Yeah, no, I I guess so. I just I'm I'm happy to be your baseline as a video guest. So. <laughs>
0: That's what friends are for, right? Touche. help right? each other out.
1: Yeah. Well, the Cardinals started off with a three game series in Cincinnati, then moved to a three game series in Miami. Along the way, they hope to pick up lefty Gung Young Kim, who threw a sim game and then would join the team, possibly to be penciled into the rotation in the near future, maybe coming out of the homestand. The Cardinals open up April 8th against Colton Wong and the Milwaukee Brewers, and there will be Clydesdales on the track, and fans in the seats, and redcoats at the ballpark, and Scott Rowland set to throw out the ceremonial mm-hmm. first pitch to the Nolan Arenado. So that's a whole lot of gold gloves jangling there between the two of them. What are some of your early impressions of this team?
0: It's interesting because the the only the only thing that's been I think dramatically different. Uh, then expectation has been the starting pitching the first time through, specifically in the in the Cincinnati series.
1: Um, mm-hmm.
0: You know, you got 12 combined innings from your three starters in those three games, and you know we've talked a lot about this year being important not to put too much on bullpens. And I know people are gonna they're gonna run the shuttle back and forth between Alt Site and Major League camp, and eventually uh, in the Cardinals' case, Memphis and the and the Major League roster when we start getting the the minor league seasons going next month. So and I know that they have some flexibility there, but I know that was also a goal is to not tax that too much. And it's only three games and I don't expect it to last. I would say that was the unexpected part. Some of the other things, both good and bad, were things that I think we kind of expected to have to watch unfold, right? Like the outfield production, like some of the guys and their swings and misses and whether or not they're going to be putting the ball in play more. Uh, but for the most part, Derek, I don't think anything's been too shocking. Do you?
1: The starting pitching, I think, but you know what, though, it was a trend that we saw in spring. Uh, they can't roll over innings in the regular season, that's true, yeah. And as much as I was dismissed for asking questions about those rollover innings and you know how pitchers needed to work out of binds and that just gave them a get out of trouble free card, um, you know, here they are. And each in each of those games, there has really been an inning where the starter had problems and had to figure a way to get out. Uh, sometimes they didn't get that chance. John Gant against the Miami Marlins had the bases loaded, nobody out. He got a chance to get out of that jam. Adam Wainwright was removed in the middle of an inning where, you know, somebody had to come in and get him out of that jam. That that to me was really something about spring training, and is really hard for not just the Cardinals but all teams to right. consider is and- – you know, where is the level of protection um, for pitchers and what does that keep them from being prepared for? Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm really fascinated by this notion uh, two things that I, want, I think we should talk about. One is like this self-fulfilling prophecy notion. If teams go in expecting something, a lot of times they make choices that make it a reality, like they they don't allow for the possibility that they're wrong and i get that there's a high risk if there's wrong but if you're only going to use a reliever in short bursts because you think he's not ready to handle the long burst then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then he will never see the long burst you're refusing to allow him to grow into that same thing here with starters if they put like you know the bubble wrap around them in some regards and say well we're going to take him easy we're going to we're going to bring him along slowly because of the workload last year we got to be ultra aware of stress innings all these things right then eventually they start making choices that, that make it a self-fulfilling prophecy because then it proves that they weren't wrong. And, you know, that, that's the thing is they don't want it to be proved wrong. And so by taking away the, the possibility of a pitcher getting through the jam, right, they just say, well, that's just too much work. And so it's, it's, it's essentially they make choices to prove themselves right without ever uh, offering the opportunity to be proved wrong. And I think that's going to be really fascinating with the rotation as they Mm -hmm. make decisions, Um, but also with Alex Reyes as his future unfolds here. Clearly, he's the closer. Mike Schilt has not hid the fact that his actions are that he likes Alex Reyes as the closer. It's, It's one of the few things from the playoffs that have lingered. You know, Dylan Carlson was the cleanup hitter in the playoffs. He's the number eight hitter against the Marlins. Alex Reyes was the closer in the playoffs. Alex Reyes is the closer. But is that become part of this self-fulfilling thing where, you know, you use him in that role to protect him from the innings needed for a starter. And eventually you just created him in that role and you'll, and next year you'll have the same excuse.
0: You, you've just described Derek, um, what's been happening with pitching in major league baseball for the last 10, 15, 20 years where everybody's, you know, counting everything, right? They're counting innings, they're counting pitches, and there's no evidence yet that any of that has prevented arm injuries, (laughs) like none, you know, guys threw 300 innings back in the day and they didn't have more arm problems than modern players do. Um, And in fact, you know, the, the emphasis on velocity and guys throwing max effort more often is far more likely to be leading to those types of problems than the sheer number of innings or number of pitches that they're working. So you're, you're right in the sense that you kind of create the reality that you expect by saying, okay, and I don't know how it became 100 pitches as this magical marker, right? Like 100 is all of a sudden a time we got to be cautious. Why? Why isn't it 92? Why isn't it 107? You know, why is it the same for every guy? And I think that this year around the sport, and obviously that we're talking Cardinals specifically here because that's what we cover, but this is happening around Major League Baseball. Everybody's having this worry about covering innings. And I'm thinking, you know, Guys have missed years, full seasons before with injury, and come back and pitch 200 innings the next year. Wayno's has done it twice. <laughs> he, yeah. did it, he did it after Tommy John, and he did it after the Achilles. Now, he's a veteran guy. I understand wanting to take care of younger guys because they don't have all of those. They don't have the experience of managing a 220-inning year and what it's like and all of that. But, I mean, I do feel like a lot of Major League Baseball is scared of its own shadow. Yeah. And that God forbid, you know, you get to be, quote unquote, blamed for an injury happening. I mean, look, look how careful the Washington Nationals always were with Steven Strasburg. It hasn't stopped them from getting hurt constantly. And it's yeah. only one example. And it um, cost
1: him in an October against the Cardinals.
0: Yes, exactly right. By being overly cautious, they didn't have their best guy when it mattered most.
1: I'm still waiting for the apology from the radio station there. <laughs>
0: Oh, but I, I do you're describing a dynamic Derek that's I think been pushed forward even more because of the time because of last season because of the the pandemic shortened season and only having two months so now this ultra cautious approach that was already taking over the game is going to be even more prevalent and then here we're going to have in a, in a few years I would I would guess we're going to start seeing think pieces from around baseball like what happened to the 200 inning starter well yeah. what happened was People were afraid to even let people go, despite the ample evidence that guys like Zach Greinke and Justin Berlander and Max Scherzer, and you name them, are guys that can throw 200 innings a year every year into their late 30s. Um, And I know that that, some people are freaks, but since, since the sport is littered with about 100 years of pitchers doing that, and it's only been the last 15 or 20 that we've been more careful, it's not really changing anything
1: that's the thing that I, I'm trying to like articulate is the fact that like even these moves that the teams make they're rigged to work right sure because they never have to face the alternative there isn't um, you know like the Nationals they'll go well we did everything possible to protect Steven Strasberg and you go well yeah but he still dealt with injuries and they're like well that was a fluke you he, he might have dealt with more had we not done this it's like well there's no way to prove that right and so the 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 analysis or the you know, the criticism of it is somehow they're, they're somehow um, they have a Teflon coating against it because you can't prove the negative. Right. And it's somewhat frustrating um, because, you know, and and Alex Reyes is the, the tangible local example of this, because what they talk about is protecting him from the bump and workload. And it's like, well, that's four years of this. And now he's in a role where, You could very much easily see him throwing 80 innings, 85 innings this year, and them going, well, you know, jump to a start is a hard thing because, you know, we don't want to have him do more than 140 next year. And really, what does that look like? You know, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, but this is the game that you've set up. Now you're like, oh, well, we're victims of circumstance. No, you're, you're victims of your decision. And you never know. You know, and then of course he goes out, and if he gets hurt trying to be a starter for 160, then they go, well, look, we, you know, you guys argued us into this, and that'll never happen. But we'll never know. We'll just never know the the other side of the coin, and eventually it just becomes this something like that's like fated to happen because they're they're so risk adverse.
0: Yeah, and and again, you know, I, I'm, and you're right. That's one of those. It's, you know, in this case, I don't know what what number or what dollar sign we want to attach to it, Derek. People used to say it's the million dollar question. This is probably more like the fifty million dollar question for Alex. Ryan, <laughs> you know, because yep. as a starter, he's going to make a whole lot more money than he is as a reliever, um, yeah. and, and and rightfully so. I mean, you're going to impact larger portions of games. I mean, you know, it's it's a and he's definitely got the repertoire to start right. Nobody disagrees with that. He's got all the pitches you would need to start. He certainly has the stuff. The only question is, um, you know, what what. What do you want to tax? What do you want? What tax do you want to place on his body? What what can his body handle? The truth is, though, you will never find out if you don't try. Right. What's 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 the old saying? You know, you know, shooters got to shoot. If you don't take the shot, you're not going to score. You know, Uh, 100 percent of shots not taken fail to score,
1: (laughs) which is exactly which is exactly what a lot of these decisions are. They're choosing not to do something because then they know 100 percent they'll be right.
0: I mean, it, it's a it's a good point, and I do think it speaks to um, like league wide philosophy. I mean, you know, it's certainly we're, we're talking again. We're talking about the cards now, but I think fans from other cities listening to this would be like, "Yeah, that sounds like our team too." Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and I know Derek. It, it's it's probably and and I don't maybe this is uh, maybe I'm not stating this strongly enough, but it most likely it has to do with money. Every player is viewed as an asset, right? This is part of a business. And if if you if you have the ability to put this, you know, this guy out there, this part of your business to be productive, you don't want to take the risk of of losing somebody. For example, like Tatis, right? You look at his injury. He just got a three hundred forty million dollar contract. And then, you know, four days into the season hurts his shoulder and he's going to be out for a bit. We don't know exactly how serious that is, but you're now paying to not get production. And that's the mm-hmm. thing I think teams probably fear more than anything is paying players. Now, in the case of Reyes, that's not really the fear because he doesn't make much right now. But I think that's what drives a lot of it moving forward. And uh, I I don't know that it would be the case in every specific scenario, but there is also um, a financial benefit, Derek, to taking young, talented players and limiting them because there's less of a body of work. There's less evidence. If a guy goes out and throws 180 strong innings and then he starts to get into arbitration, well, you got a lot of good comps of people that, you know, that, that there's not that many that are doing it right. I mean, you've got a, a way to t- command more money. If you're going out throwing 70 or 80 innings, I mean, you know, you're not it's not going to carry the same weight. And I don't Jeez. think that teams always look at it that way. But I wonder, you know, league wide, we see the the suppression of, of prospects coming up. Right. We see them all. A lot of them artificially held back for, for you know, contractual reasons. And I wonder if that plays into some of these decisions around major league baseball, where you look at it and say, well, you know, if if this guy goes out there and has two or three um, super successful 200 inning seasons right out of the gate, he's going to get expensive really fast. And if we, we limit that, or if we keep starters in general, not just kids, but starters in general to that, you know, two times through the rotation, well, then what are you doing? You're not, you're putting in a position where those guys aren't going to command what Garrett Cole commands or what those guys, cause they're never going to reach that plateau.
1: It's a great point. And it, it does add in like another evolution of the notion of teams making decisions based on value as opposed to talent, um, mm-hmm. where they're like, well, this guy could impact 180 innings, but he could be more valuable to us if we limit his salary at 80 innings. Uh, that's, uh, That's a fascinating and really discouraging twist of the analytics dial um, because it continues that notion that like the teams who have a chance to get like a better player at eight million dollars will say, you know what, we prefer the better value at six hundred thousand dollars, even though we're not going to get the same caliber of player. Um, So all of a sudden now you're not building the best team, you're trying to build the best value team. And I get that teams have to do that in some markets. I get get that the Rays have to do that. Um, But because the Rays can do it and spend less money, then teams like, you know, that have the money um, are going, well, wait, we could make more money if we start making value plays as opposed to full talent plays. I guess that 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 makes the Dodgers stand out in some regards. And you hope that maybe the Mets start skewing the line a little bit and maybe drag the Yankees with them. So they make some decisions best on are made on, uh, make some decisions that are hinged on the best player, not the best value or the best name brand move, as opposed to the smartest guy in the room move. I don't know. You know, I mean the, the, you know, the Cardinals are kind of, to be honest, they're kind of caught in the middle, which is where they've had problems now for, for really good decade is, you know, not the, not the, the best team in the National League, not the highest spender in the National League, not the best farm system in the National League, but definitely not the worst, not the lowest, not the not the most mediocre. They've just kind of been in the middle and they have, you know, talked themselves out of some big moves. They have fallen short of some significant moves. And then, of course, they make the big Arenado deal this right, winter, right. which was definitely a play for the best player, not necessarily the best value. Correct. Correct. So it's interesting that, you know, you have a team that is trying to straddle these two philosophies that are, are um, that, that are really consuming baseball.
0: Yeah, I, I do think that um, most teams are a mixed bag, right? I mean, the Rays are probably the most focused or at least the most successful team that's almost entirely focused on value. That's why they can go from being in the World Series last year to trading uh, one of their most important starters, the Cy Young Award winner in 2018 and Blake Snell, and then letting Charlie Morton walk, they 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 get, quote unquote, get away with it because they don't have as much choice, right? Where bigger market teams with more money have the choice. And I think you have to do both, right? I mean, you can't just be like, you know, always going for the big bang, right? Sometimes it does have to be bang for the buck rather than biggest bang. But sure. but I do think that's, if if I were a part of the Players Association, this would be something, or if I were, if I were an agent, this is something that I'd be paying close attention to because, you know, a lot of these things that are, that are supposed to be in the best interest of the player, like limiting the workload, you know, like making sure that they're not overworked will also limit pay. I mean, it Mm -hmm. will, it just, it has to because less sample size or less less achievement equals less money. It just does. We, we watch how the arbitration process plays out year in and year out. So it it may be another area too, Derek. That's concerning because it's another area that could widen the gap between the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Mets and the yeah. uh, and, and those top five or six teams that have the most revenue and literally everybody else. And the Cardinals are a really high revenue team, but they're not in the league of those teams. You know, right. they do really well. What are they usually around that eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, like somewhere in that range, uh, yes, both, both payroll wise and revenue wise. But the gap between Say like number five and then number six, seven, and eight is pretty big.
1: So yeah, there's a continental shelf. So the, the yeah. gap between one, two, and three is significant to three, four, five. Right is significant to six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Is significant to um you know seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. So like there's like this like cluster of teams yeah. um that are either large because of their market and they can't help it or large because of their fan base and they get to benefit from that. And the Cardinals are in the latter. Right. When you look at this first road trip and some of the things that stand out, the, the one thing that I wanted, really wanted to try to capture in our conversation is this notion of patience. And how much should the Cardinals have and where should it be placed? If there's a finite amount of patience um, that they have to give, to say, okay, things have to change. Are you willing to like go a little bit longer with the rotation after seeing it, then say outfield production or neither? Like how quickly do the, do the Cardinals need to go look, you know, the bullpen has been as advertised and the one day that they struggled allowing eight runs in the just Mm -hmm. drubbing by the reds and Nicholas Castellanos. Was at the end of having to cover more innings than they right. expected. And just like you saw the the cascade effect of limited starts. So the bullpen, as expected, but rotation, not offense, hit or miss, outfield, not. Where's the patience for you?
0: Well, I mean, it, it, your patience should, has to, by definition, it's going to have to extend as far as the limit of your options your alternate options. So interesting. You know, when you look at the rotation, if you, you know, you, you got to give people a few times through, and of course, it'd be nice down the road here if you're if you're healthy and you have Kwon Young Kim back and Miles Michael's back, because that gives you a little bit better idea of what you have to be patient with, right? Uh, but I think you have the ability to be a little patient with the with the rotation um, because you know those two guys are coming, right? I mean, it, it, barring setbacks, you know, they appear to be coming back, and and then if they don't, you got to reset that expectation. And look at with the younger guys that could be behind, you know, behind uh, the guys that are currently on the roster. Um, on the offensive side, again, what are the options? So you don't have an alternative for many of your choices. You know, it's not yeah. like it's not like there's a top 100 prospect um, in the outfield right now that's ready, other than Dylan Carlson, right? I mean, but he's already in the mix. So if we're talking about you know what choices there are there, it really is going to come down to the people you have anyway. So you don't have much choice. But to be patient and see what O'Neill and Williams, uh, by extension, what Matt Carpenter does uh, because of the ability to do what they did in game two with the Marlins and put Edmund in the outfield and Carpenter at second if he's swinging the bat, right. I, don't, I don't think there's a choice um, when it comes to that. I don't think there's any choice at all um, in terms of having patience for the first, mo- uh, first month, maybe even Derek, heck, it might even be the first two months because the minor league season's not going to start, so you're not going to have an idea if somebody's down there tearing the cover off the ball and you got guys up here struggling, all right, well, let's give that guy a shot. Well, right now you don't have any of that to fall back to.
1: So Lane Thomas exists though. I mean, Lane Thomas is there. Do you, I mean, do you have to make a sort of like a blind choice then at that point? Like he hasn't been playing games, but you give this, you give this group a look at for, for a fortnight and then say, well, let's see if we can catch lightning in the bottle. Because as of right now, I mean, look, right field right now for the Cardinals is one for 19. They have the fewest hits of any team that has, you know, played more than one game because um, the Nationals also have one hit, but the Nationals have one game. Yeah. They've played, um, you know, the, the Cardinals are one for 19 from right field. They got 10 strikeouts in that spot. Yep. 10, so 10 out of, so half, almost and then half. And the one,
0: the one hit, though, is your starting second baseman.
1: Correct. Right. It was Edmund. <laughs> and right. It wasn't, you know, so – you know, and the outfield through its first 46, I believe it was at bats, had 20 strikeouts. So, you know, quite a bit of strikeouts there as well, which is part of the trade off if you get power, but not at that 45, 46% rate. And I guess, you know, it, it's like, well, this is a new group, but it's the same concern. So, do you go, OK, well, this is a new group, so it gets a little bit more patience? Or do you go, this is the same concern at some point in time, what change is made when it's the same thing of 2020, same thing of 2019?
0: Right. And so it's, it's a slightly different answer for each guy then. Right. I mean, because so we, we've we seen more of O'Neill. I know Bader's not in there now, but eventually, you know, here in the not too distant future, he's going to be. So we have we've seen more of them than we've seen of Williams or Thomas or Austin Dean or John Nagowski, for example. So it might be a different level of patience um, with guys that, okay, you're saying, is it any different than it's looked before? I apply that to Matt Carpenter too, right? Um, So those guys that you have some history with, if it's looking, if you're getting to the point where it's, you know, you're getting late April into May Mm -hmm. and a lot of what you're seeing is what you have seen already for two or three years, I think that's something that would reinforce, or, or something I like reinforce, that might um, maybe just force your decision sooner rather than later. It's harder to be patient, um, certainly for fans, Derek, as we both find out on a regular basis. Yeah, it's harder yeah. to be patient when what you're seeing is what you've been seeing. Now, on the good side, like, you know, your patience, for example, is on the other end of that spectrum is Goldschmidt and Aranata that you're going to be ultra patient with guys who have been good and nonstop good for a long period of time.
1: Right. And so that's the rotation, right? So in this
0: exactly right.
1: But, but then we get to the point where we were talking about that. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because you just, you limit, you put less patience on the young players and never get a chance to flourish. And that's really the bind the Cardinals are in. So you almost have to look beyond the results to how they're getting to the results. Right. Okay. So Justin Williams exactly. wins, yeah. wins a spot on the opening day roster and in the, and uh, the, in the opening day lineup, because in part he's left-handed, but also a large part of that is he was hitting the ball often and hard, uh, during spring training, not always getting the same results, but you know, strong, you know, performances there. Um, But how does that translate to the regular season? I think it's fascinating that, like, Tyler O'Neill, had one of the best spring trainings. And really, you know, his swing was different. There was a potency there. There was a consistency there. Really a strong spring training. Does that carry over? Or, you know, now we're seeing how teams are attacking him, and he's struggled in some games. Is he just going to see more of that? And not be able to translate what was going on in exhibition play into regular season play. Going into the final game of the Marlins series, the three game set down there at Lone Depot Park. Am I saying that right? I
0: don't know. Sure, they, they okay. changed names. They changed names down in South Florida for their stadiums, like everybody else has changed their socks.
1: Well, they no longer have the fish tank, so we can't call it that, right? Um, you know. Oh well. All right. So the the ballpark in Miami. <laughs> you know, going into the final final game there, the final game before they open at home, I mean, they, the outfield is 25 strikeouts and 52 at-bats. Yeah. You know, it's five for 52 with uh, five extra base hits. So all of their hits have been extra base hits um, from the outfield. So, you know, from outfielders, I should say. that yeah. That's probably the best way to say that, from outfielders. And, you know, I mean, like t- two walks, two walks, man. Mm-hmm. Twenty-five I mean, I, strikeouts, two walks.
0: What we're going to end up, and and by the way, you know the, that's an
1: 096 the, average.
0: Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> that's I mean, how good. long
1: will that play? How long will that carry? Yeah. You know, because you know what what we see in result of this is a transfer of pressure. That's essentially what happens. Okay, so the starters don't go enough into games. Don't pitch deep enough into games. That puts the pressure on the bullpen to carry more than it can to break from its role, to handle the workload. And then that pressure snaps the bullpen and they give up eight runs to the Cincinnati reds in a game where the Cardinals just wilted. Now on the offensive side, the outfield isn't carrying its weight, isn't providing offensively that shifts the pressure to earlier in the lineup to some of these stars who can just be pitched around. And Oh, by the way, then the bullpen has to carry some of that pressure because it's closer games, shorter games, more often, yeah, yeah, higher leverage spots. So the same relievers going into these spots over and over again, and you know what will happen? The bullpen will fray and fracture and fall apart, and the strength of the team will be lost because of a weakness elsewhere.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. That's that. I mean, that's why the balance of a roster is usually its strength, right? Some of the best teams in baseball now are all of the best teams in baseball now are balanced. They don't have one unit that severely lacks behind the others. You know, they, they've got quality across the board and the Cardinals want that. Uh, and I think offensively speaking, you know, that it all comes down to the outfield, right? I mean, how do they go? So here's the question. And I'm about to make, I don't know what percentage, Derek, but a large percentage of people listening to this get angry and yell at their uh, at their cell phone or throw something across the room because people hate this. But this is where you have to have the debate between what is more predictive right now? Mm. Is it the statistics? you know, Tyler O'Neill, three for 20, uh, you know, striking out forty three percent of the time right now? or is it the fact that his average exit below is ninety two and a half, which is well above league average? In fact, it puts him in the top twenty five percent of major league hitters so far this year, and his hard hit rate is in the top twenty five percent of hitters this year. So what's more predictive that stuff or the 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 result, right? Now, the result is also measured. I think we can look at this and, and Baseball Savant has some really interesting things on there that help with this, like expected batting average, expected slug, mm-hmm. uh, the expected weighted on base versus the actual. And so what, what should they be getting based on exit velo's and launch angles and you know, the consistency of their hard contact and all that? And I think that's what we need to look at. It's neither the batted ball data nor the traditional statistics. I think we have to start looking at the expected numbers versus the actual numbers and what is that telling us. So using O'Neal as an example, his current slugging percentage is 350, or at least that's what it was through five games. His expected slug, based on the characteristics of the balls that he's put into play, is 429. So he should be getting more production than he is on the Mm -hmm. power side, right, on the the slug side, because it's all slug, it's not consistency or uh, it's not base hits, right? His expected batting average is 162 compared to 150. So it's it's more, but it's not notably more, and it's not uh, good in either of those directions. So while it, the numbers were there, and it's super small sample, so the smaller the sample, the less these numbers actually tell us. <laughs> but all we have is small sample. We don't have anything else to go by because I don't think we can look at spring this way. And we can say the same thing for Justin Williams, right? Um, you know, his average exit below so far in, in the regular season is 93 miles an hour. The problem is he's striking out 60% of the time. And Mm -hmm. this is where we have to look at things like the whiff rate and not just exit below, right? How often are you missing? How often are you striking out? Those things are going to tell us, you know, a lot too. So that's really where this all becomes difficult, right? Because you can see these guys, when they hit it, are hitting it very hard. But when combined, they're not hitting it about 50% of the time. You can't get anything out of that.
1: Right, yeah, an average exit velo of one of ninety five is very impressive.
0: It's great but until not it's half the time.
1: Well, I was gonna say until you're told that that's an average of four balls in play and there's eight strikeouts. Correct. Right. Correct. That's that's not all that. But so I'm glad you brought this up because you know it was something that in spring training we had access to really this year for the first time. The Cardinals, um, Marlins, and Mets all had their ballparks set up with. Statcast and baseball savant. And mm-hmm. it was publicly available. Yep. Um, whereas before we would have to kind of, uh, Oh, I mean, we'd, we'd report and research and try to get the internal data that they were using and, and sometimes we're able to get it. This was readily available. I mean, I was able to go through 300 batted ball events, um, uh, at Roger Dean or mm-hmm. up at uh, Clover park where the, where the Mets call home just to look at what the Cardinals were actually doing. Um, But I get it from a fan perspective is they're like inundated with these fancy, cool abbreviations, like you just said, exit velo. So let's 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 offer the listeners some view into what that actually means. Just so they have a tangible understanding. So we're not just kicking around numbers. Okay. So a good average exit velocity for a team, for an entire team, if you look over the past three years, you know, the best teams are about 90, a little bit more north of 90 right. for an average exit velocity. That number corresponds with some of the best offenses in baseball. Right. All right. So it's right. considered an indicator. The Dodgers had an exit velo as a team overall of greater than 90. Right. The and the average is what, about 88?
0: Year. Right.
1: Yep. The average is yeah. about 88. Yeah. The Cardinals saw a decrease in about two and a half over the last few years just a, a a plummet in their exit velocity. Tyler O'Neill was part of that. Um, you know, last year the, the team just as a whole and along with individuals just saw it absolutely plummet through those 300, through those 300 batted ball data, in, in, you know, that I looked at, mm-hmm. I think it was seven Cardinals had balls in spring training that they hit harder, i.e. had a higher exit velocity than any ball they hit last year. So, for whatever reason you know i mean it was was it the quarantine was it the covid was it something that they were doing preparation wise something about their swing was it just you know all the double headers whatever it was um and that's essentially what we're talking about when we talk about exit velo it's about how hard are they hitting it it's it's basically a way kevin to measure bat speed we used to talk about Right, like Gary Sheffield. You right. see Gary Sheffield and go, "Gosh, that guy's got tremendous bat speed." Or you see Mark McGuire, you go, "Gosh, that guy's got tremendous bat speed." Well, now they've they've found a way to take that off the eyeball test. When you say you have all these scout phrases, quick hands, quick bat, yep, good bat speed, all these things. Now they put a number on it. They said, "Well, exit velocity is a way for us to measure that." It's one of the reasons why the Cardinals drafted Paul DeYoung. His team you know, at Illinois State, they put a radar gun to watch how guys hit the ball off the tee. He had strong exit velocity off the tee. You know, that's not a pitch coming in at pace. That's just a pitch at standstill, and he had good exit velocity. Right. Same thing with Randall Gritchick. It was one of the reasons why the Cardinals made the trade for Randall Grichik. They were able to get his exit VLO numbers before they were widely available. Right. And they're like, this guy, if you can get him to hit the ball often, hmm he already hits it hard, so let's see what happens if he hits it often. And that's the other leap that anytime we talk about exit velocity, we're also talking about contact in the strike zone. Yes. These numbers go hand in hand and yes. the best offenses do those two things really well. Did I explain exit velocity? Well, do you do you want to add to that as to why it's become this be all end all indicator?
0: Yeah, I mean, it matters a lot. More. I mean, it's more predictive, right? But it's not, a, see, this is the thing. It's not predictive all by itself. Um, you're, people, again, I'm going to make people yell here. People don't want to hear it. But your launch angle matters. You know, look at look at the game. Was, I think it was the first game against the Marlins. Paul Goldschmidt had a ball come off the bat at 97, 98 miles an hour. So way above average. It was a pop-up because he hit it straight up into the air. So it didn't go anywhere. If you beat that ball straight into the ground, it might be 105 coming off the bat, but by the second hop, it's 85. So, you know, it's it's a routine ground ball at that point. And that's the thing. So here's the perfect example, a non-cardinal example to illustrate what I'm talking about. It was 2020 Kyle Schwarber. So mm. Kyle Schwarber had an average exit below in the top 5% in all of baseball last year. There were only, I mean, again, that's that's a pretty that's pretty high, right? When I mean, you're in the top 5%. His hard hit rate was in the top 15%. Yet he hit 188 and his OPS was 701 and he slugged 393. Why? Because he hit too many ground balls. His ground ball rate spiked from 35, 38%
1: to 50%.
0: Mm. And when you're, when you're, I don't care how hard you hit the ball, Derek, when you're hitting it into the ground, it immediately decelerates after that first hop and it decelerates with every hop after that. So it may leave the bat at 110 or 114, but it's still just a ground out. It's, you know, it's, it's, and, it, and again, you have the opposite end of the spectrum, which I illustrated with Goldschmidt. So we have to consider those two things together. They have to be together. And then what you pointed out about contact, right? Because this only tells us what you do when you make contact. <laughs> what about all the times you're not making contact? And if that right. percentage of not putting the ball in play is too high, even with a great exit velo. Um, that was part of it with Schwarber last year, right? Using him as the as the great non-cardinal example, his strikeout rate was pretty brutal. He was in the bottom 15% in Major League Baseball. So when you combine not enough balls in play, and then even though you're hitting it hard, hitting too many of them on the ground, you had a really subpar year for a guy that should be better than he was.
1: Right. Yeah. It, you know, and you, there is an argument that average exit velocity, that that number for a player should include zeros for strikeouts that I don't know. I don't like the math of that, to be honest. Yeah, you're right. It, There's
0: more to it than that. You're right.
1: But it obvious, but when you talk about average exit velocity and you go like, well, this guy has an average exit velocity of 93. Yeah. The counter I mean, that's to Justin that
0: Williams is, right now. Right. His average exit velocity is 93, but you know, you strike striking you know, you're swinging and missing too much.
1: Right. So if you were to put in a, a zero for all the events that end in a strikeout, because there was no exit velocity when you make no contact, then would that give us a better readout on on hitters? Allow me to draw from the second game there in Miami as a further example so that hopefully listeners can kind of latch on to this, is I'm going to tell you about two batted ball events, and you tell me what happened. You ready?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, one is 101.4 exit velocity. Mm -hmm. uh, Launch angle 41. Nope, sorry. Launch angle 30 degrees, so Mm -hmm. quality, right? Distance 385, so that's one. So exit velocity, 101.4, launch angle, 30, and the distance it traveled, 385. That's one. Mm -hmm. That's event A. Event B, 102.1 off the bat, 28-degree launch angle, 380 feet Mm -hmm. distance. So which one is which? What what happened in those two things? Both of them above 100 exit velocity, Mm -hmm. both of them right in that really good, sweet spot, Mm -hmm. pun intended, of launch angle and both of them traveled 380 or more.
0: Right. Well, the what first happened? one, the first one I think is Carpenter's ball to left center last night or, um, yeah, not last night, but on uh, Tuesday night. Right. And, the fr- and the second one, I believe is that Carlson's home run. Correct. Yeah. The difference is where they're hit. Right. Yeah. You hit it down the line. It's gone by 30, 40 feet. You hit it straight away. Center field. It's fly out.
1: Okay. So Matt Carpenter's. So Dylan Carlson's expected batting average. And, uh, on the, on that hit was 1000 mm-hmm. and the expected slugging percentage on it, I'm pretty sure is 4,000 because <laughs> I, 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 and I'm not, I'm not trying to make a joke, but those expecteds are based on the volume of data that is brought in and it's compared to other events yes. of its type. Right. So this is not just like, and, and I think that's important for people to kind of latch on to, is it's not just like eyeballing it and go, well, most of the time that gets a hit. This is based on all the data that it says for
0: years too, not just this year.
1: Right, right. For going back more than 10 years okay. now, right. um, since the advent of TrackMan, really mm-hmm. all the batted ball data information is like, OK, at that ballpark, at that exit velocity, at that launch angle, at that distance, um, at, you know, in that angle, meaning, you know, where it was hit on the field. That gives you an average batting average of 1,000 yeah. um, because it's over the fence. No one right. can catch it, right? right? right. Okay, this, this is valuable for offense, and this is also valuable for defense because it gives us a sense as to when good plays are made because right. Matt Carpenter, inter Matt Carpenter. His, acts at his expected batting average on that hit, and I, I don't have the uh, um, expected slugging, um, but his expected batting average on that is
0: 680.
1: Right. So 68% of the time in 100 similar events, there would be a hit.
0: Yeah. Of some so kind. that also
1: yeah. corresponds to 32% of the time the defensive player would make the play. Right. So that play was a good play. And that hit, everything about it was really good except for the location and that ballpark.
0: Right. And by the way, I know, again, I'm about to make people yell but this is why hitters work so hard at pulling the ball because when you pull those balls, they're home. When you hit them up the middle, when you go gap to gap, they're much more likely to be flyouts, And that's part of the modern hitting is part of the reason why people are so pull happy. It's why Mm -hmm. the shift is what it is. Um, because when you, you can, I mean, that, that's one example. And it, you know, maybe the adjustment is over the top. I'm not trying to justify Mm -hmm. selling out for power uh, to a degree, but that's why hitters are doing that, especially in counts that they can control, because right. it's hard to do that from foul pole to foul pole. There aren't many hitters that are good enough to do that. Like Mike okay. Trout can do it, Juan Soto can do it, but I'm not sure that your average major league hitter can do it. I'm not sure that even above average major league hitters are that good, where they can hit home runs from foul pole to foul pole. Uh, right. But the best ones can, right? That's what makes, in my argument, in my estimation, that's what makes them the best. Is that they do damage anywhere, and that allows them to hit all kinds of pitches and all kinds of locations, which is again why they're so awesome. So, if we take more of the average, right, the middle of the pack guys, uh, their better odds are to sell out to pull because when they do make that contact, it's going to be productive. It's going to be a home run. It's it's not going to be a flyoff.
1: That's fascinating. That that that's interesting. Um, are we are we in the mood to just irritate? listeners then is that what i mean, mean i'm not
0: trying to and i'm not justifying anything <laughs> yeah. i mean because people can argue that you know that and part that's part of what leads to a lot of the strikeouts that are out there right i mean right if you're trying to pull sinkers that are running away from you good luck and because you're doing one of two things with that you're either swinging and missing or you're rolling it over into the shift <laughs> right yeah. so you know it's 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 not that it's I'm not or you're saying, hitting
1: a twenty-foot single because the pitcher doesn't get off the
0: mound. Correct, and I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm saying this is what's happening. This All is, right. and that's the explanation. If you want to know why guys are so pull happy, uh, it's because a most people have better power to their pull side because you're working in the direction that your body is moving rather than the opposite direction of which way your body is rotating. Right, your body's going to rotate right. towards the pull side. I mean, that's just how it works. So you're going to have more power that way. Um, and you know, it's just, your body works better when, when you think about like weightlifting, for example, right there, uh, when you're lifting, you're better lifting with things closer to the center of your body rather than away, right? You wouldn't pick up a heavy weight with your arms. I have arms no idea extended. what
1: you're talking about.
0: <laughs> you wouldn't pick up a heavy weight with your arms straight out and extended out in front of you, uh, unless you want to hurt your back. You're going to do all that close up, right? So you're going to keep whatever the weight is close to your body, close to your center mass. so You can move it a little easier. And, you know, th- that's the idea. So does it, it it's not I'm, not, I'm not trying to justify this as an overall strategy, but that's what hitters are doing. And the reason they're doing it is because power gets paid. Hmm. If, you, if you're going to make money and you're going to make serious money, you're a power hitter. There are no singles hitters that that are super wealthy. There right. are. There's nobody that's going to be, uh, you know, like the Juan Pierre of the world, who's going to hit 300 every year, but no slug. That guy's never going to get paid. That guy's going to make, you know, the bottom end of the salary spectrum for whatever his job is as a bench player, as a starting player, whatever. So, well, that's, that's, and that's by the way, it's why pitchers go for strikeouts. It's why they they work on velocity because strikeout pitchers make the most money.
1: Yeah. Which is, which is, there's a correction afoot there. I want to take us back to this game Tuesday night in Mm -hmm. Miami and also, you know, kind of continue on looking at, what we're talking about with exit velocity and tie that into patience. There were two Cardinals who had batted balls in play at 95 or greater in that game. Um, in a game that really was dominated by Sandy Alcantara for a long time. Yeah. And you know, he, so, so not too many balls were hit hard on either side, to be honest. Um, but, but, Two Cardinals had at least two. Mm -hmm. Would you care to guess who those two Cardinals were?
0: Mm. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. I know I actually looked at these things last night, too. I don't remember. You'll have to let me know. So as
1: Matt Carpenter had two. Right. And Yadier Molina had three. Right. Of exit velocity of 95 or greater.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Yadier Molina had uh, a sack fly on one and two singles on the other. However... Hit one of his launch angles on a single was negative, right, and the distance 16, right, straight down, and the expected batting average on such a hit is 190, right, all right, but he got a single on it. Matt Carpenter did not get a hit, as everyone in Cardinal Nation probably knows.
0: (laughs) Not only did they know it, they tweeted it.
1: Right, he hit fifth, did not get a hit. However, was the only Cardinal with two balls in play. In that area that they're looking for, yep. hundred or above, or a hundred or above, launch angle in that you know whatever eighteen to thirty-two range, right, and then distance. Yep. Matt Carpenter had the, the aforementioned flyout of three hundred eighty-five feet. He also had a line drive of three hundred seventeen feet. Expected batting average on that was four fifty. So he had two balls with an expected batting average of greater than four hundred two balls with expected slugging percentages, each of greater than Mm -hmm. 550, and he's 0 for 2. And people wonder why he's playing. And it's like, well, that's why he's playing, is because the Cardinals are betting that sometime those numbers are going to catch up with him. And he's betting that sometimes those numbers are going to catch up with him. How much patience should they have those numbers, which he also had during spring, don't get production.
0: I mean, it's again. Some of it depends on what other people are doing, right? Um, if if other people are putting up similar numbers or or, or somehow getting more production, uh, like actual results. I mean, that's the thing, though, is if he's doing that, Derek, he's not gonna he's not gonna hit like he did in the spring. He won't hit oh, 030 or whatever. If that's what he's doing. It, it, it will eventually change. I mean that. That's why, absolutely. If you are consistently hitting the ball hard in the right range, it's the odds. It's it, it, the odds are going to come around. That's You're
1: what not. the fans wonder, though. Is well, yeah, why but, haven't they? Well, like the, the, the problem
0: is First of all, the in the spring, um, who knows? I mean, it, it could be just a run of bad luck for 18 games. I mean, 18 games is nothing. Now, the thing with Matt Carpenter is. He has not done that consistently over the last couple of years. So, you know, that that's what's going to tell us the story is, does it continue? Because if it continues, the, the numbers will be there. If he's doing that on a regular basis, like right now, again, so it's only four batted balls. So this is a terribly small sample size. But mm-hmm. if his exit below is 95 and his launch angle is 22, which is what it is right now, and his strikeout rate is 25%, which is perfectly acceptable in baseball. That would be below what it was for him the last two years. He's going to mm-hmm. put numbers up. He is. I mean, it, it, it may not be. So just as an example, right? So far this year, he's hitting 0 right? Well, his expected batting average is 200 points above that. Mm-hmm. So his weighted on base average, and again, sorry, this is for the, for the alphabet soup and all that, but that's just a simple okay. way of of quantifying total production, right? Um and yeah. it, it, it and it and it's you know counting for bad at ball data, all that. So he's he's his actual weighted on base right now is 101. That's bad. Like good would be kind of like a good on-base percentage. So like 370, 380 is good. And that's where Carpenter was in the 2015, 16, 17, 18 seasons. Okay. So that's when mm-hmm. he was really a productive hitter. His expected weighted on base right now is 380, which would be better than any of his actual ones during his best years. So this is where it becomes difficult. Now, you can't draw any conclusions from from eight plate appearances. You know, you can't. Uh, But when we're comparing it to other guys with eight plate appearances, then okay, it's apples to apples. And I know that people are, I I mean, I, I didn't intend this, Derek, but I know people are yelling at us right now. Nobody is saying that a player that isn't producing over a period of time should get to keep running out there. But if this is continuing to happen, if he's hitting the ball this way, at this rate, those hits will start to happen. This is what happened in 2018. Remember the beginning of the year? It was terrible. You know, April was awful, And the Cardinals kept saying, look, the data's there. uh, The exit below's there. And, you know, in looking at it, we can see it all now. It was. And for four months, he was one of the best hitters in Major League Baseball. And right. then in September it kind of fell off again. and I do think the numbers fell off again there too, not I mean like the batted ball data, not just the statistics, but it right. didn't come back for 2019, and it didn't come back for 2020. And you know, like if you look at those two years, the exit velo dropped, the average exit velo dropped. The launch angle got lower, so more ground balls. Uh, the strikeout rate went up, the hard hit rate went down. So there was there was actual measurable data explaining what mm-hmm. was happening with Matt Carpenter. So we can see when he was good and when he was bad and what those things look like. So eventually, if he's doing what we saw so far early or in the spring, eventually they will the the, the, the odds will tell you that those will be hits. Some of them, not all of them, but the, the numbers will be there if you keep doing that.
1: When all the analytics revolution took hold and and I can think about it in my time covering the Cardinals. This is coming up on or this we're into my 18th year covering the Cardinals. And when it started, um I can remember having to spell out on base plus slugging percentage and then offering a clause explaining what that is. Right. And today in the paper I can just put OPS. That's the growth of these numbers. And you know, we're right here basically on the precipice of exit velocity becoming more tangible and people knowing what that means. This is something that I have described before and I will probably describe again, but it's the best way I can think of it is stats come in three varieties and they have three different purposes. And we can argue what stats are more valuable and what mm-hmm. stats tell us the story better, all those things. I think we all universally can we dismiss the win, correct, for a pitcher?
0: I would think so. I think, okay. I mean, barring, the, barring the, the the most stubborn of the old school, right?
1: Fine, yeah. but But the win has a narrative value because it tells us, with the Cardinals, especially in the past week, we can say these guys didn't qualify for a win, and we know right. what that means.
0: It's the context it's, that tells you, right?
1: Correct. It's the definition of that. And that actually has value for us. You know, same with an RBI. An RBI, while it can be dismissed by the advanced metrics as a context stat, fine. But narratively, it tells us a run actually scored. Right. To get an RBI, a run must have scored. Right. By definition. And the game is still based on runs. Okay, so this is something that I've said before and really should, and I'll, I'll say it again, I really should kind of like distill it into a thing. The stats come in three ways. One is a narrative stat. Yes. That's the stat that helps tell the story. Right. An RBI. Right. A win. You know, batting average. Right. That helps us tell the stat. Right. Or I'm stor- the story. These are stats that it's the value is negligible, but it helps us tell the story. And right. immediately people know what it means. Exactly. Second set. Quantitative. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Quantitative tells us how m- much that meant to the team's win. What was the value to the team? I'll give a, an example. Batting average is narrative. Slugging percentage is quantitative. Right. OPS is quantitative. War You know. Be that. What's that?
0: War. War. Wins, wins above replacement would be the...
1: War you know. is quantitative. Yeah. Right. WPA, win probability added. Yep. Quantitative to tell us what a high leverage spot is because right. a save... A save is narrative. A save tells us when the guy entered, what the score was, and possibly how many innings he threw. Um, It does not tell us anything about the bind he was in doing that. Right, right. Win probability added does. Correct. Okay. So now those are the two. Narrative, quantitative. So while, while we're following along, narrative batting average, quantitative slugging.
0: Yep.
1: Final is predictive. Correct. Predictive stats. That's the final class of the trail is these stats tell you what's about to happen or what teams can count on happening. Now you could argue that a guy who, you know, like Albert pools, you could say, well, gosh, his batting average, his slugging percentage, those were predictive stats. I mean, I get it, but it took a large body of work for them to be predictive. It wasn't like after his first year of batting 300 with 100 RBIs and 30 home runs, you went, oh, well, he's going to do it again next year because those numbers are, quanti- or, are predictive. Right. Over right. five years when he does it, then you go, well, there's a good chance that he's going to do it again. He does it for 10 years. Oh, there's a good chance he's going to do it again. So it takes a larger sample size, one that teams don't have the luxury of waiting on. So predictive stats are what we've been discussing exit velo, right, um, right. swinging chase rates, um, you know, fielding independent pitching can be that mm-hmm. regard, yeah. you know, things like Outs that swing average. miss rate, else above average. Right. Exactly. So these are things that's the final class of stats. So narrative batting average, quantitative slugging percentage, predictive exit velocity. Right.
0: That's and- where we're at
1: with baseball.
0: And what I, what I think a lot of people push back against, Derek, is, A, people don't want to learn what all the new um, um, abbreviations mean. You know, you've understood the game for, you know, your entire adult life in one way. And it's not, it's not that fun. Like, I, I kind of equate it to having to go back to school, right? I'm 49 years old. If you said I had to go back to dude, high what? school. And, yeah, 49 years old. If I had to go wow. back to high school and like, do dude, calculus, that's almost 50. Yeah, I know. Like, give me six months, I'll be there. <laughs> Actually, wow. a little bit more than that. But yeah, it's getting there. But if you if you said to me now, you've got to go, I never, I never took actual calculus. I took pre-calculus. I was not a big math guy. And I wasn't planning on taking anything in college that required math. So pre-calculus as far as I went. If you tell me today that I've got to go back and take calculus at high school level, I'm done. I'm out. Forget it. I'll fail. I'll just say, you know what? I'm not going to show up. Give me the F. Because I don't want to bother with it. And I think a lot of people look at the new stuff that way. Look, I've understood the game for a long time. I don't want to hear about all this other stuff. And it sounds like excuses. But the reality is the simpler version of this. And I try to explain these kinds of things in more simple terms, right? So I coach 14-year-olds. If I have a 14-year-old kid who's at the plate and he hits um, a duck snort into right field, like off the end of the bat, it bloops in, barely falls in. It goes about 105 feet but it only falls in because you're playing 14 u baseball. At high school level, the first baseman's going to catch that ball or the second baseman's going to catch that ball. I, I don't congratulate that kid because he got a single. I don't pat him on the back and say, awesome job, buddy. It's like, hey, you'll, I, the, the, the statement is, hey, wait a battle. We'll get him next time. The guy hits a rocket to the center fielder and it's caught. I'm going to pat that guy on the back all day, every day. He did his job. Your hmm. job is to go up there and hit the ball hard. Not depending on the circumstance, right? It can change, and this is where I think major league hitters are not as good as previous generations of major league hitters in that there's no, I shouldn't say there is no, there isn't enough of an adjustment from enough players, like, say, runner on third base, less than two outs. Too many guys are still taking the daddy hack, trying to Mm -hmm. hit the ball 500 feet, rather than doing what the job is at that point, which is scoring the run. Now, it depends on the context of the game, too. If you're up seven, all right, you know, swing for the downs, you know, if you're, if you're down seven, though, you should probably try to push the run across without, without sacrificing an out. I'm not talking about bunting or anything like that, but that, that, that what, what we see less of at the major league level now is that ability or willingness, one of the two to adjust. But I think people who get I don't want to say scared, but get frustrated by terminology. And, you know, when you, when you hear these things from Matt Carpenter, people like, I don't want to hear excuses. Well, no, those aren't excuses. Those are actually, it's, it's physics. It's measuring exactly what happened. You you can argue with whether or not it's going to hold future meaning because we don't have time machines to go forward and figure it out in advance. But based on what we know, based on what what people who are really good with math have told us, this is going to tell us what we can expect in the future. There is no automatic, though. Nothing in the future is automatic. You know, I can say I'm going to have a nice 34-minute drive into work later on today, but it might be 37 if I catch a couple red lights. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know, it might yeah. be it might be 40 if somebody gets into a fender bender or something along those lines. So it, the future is unknown, but you can have a better idea of it by looking at those things. And I think the explanations of those things are are, are kind of old school. Right, Derek? I mean, you know, when, when you hit a ball hard, you've done your job. There's nothing else you can do.
1: Right. Producer, not
0: director. Right. I mean, and and you can people I say, well, you can you can try to place the ball and you can count the number of players in the last 25 years capable of doing that on one hand, right? Maybe Ichiro could do that. Maybe, you know, I think Tony Gwynn could do that, but Mm -hmm. those guys are the freaks, man. I mean, throughout the history of the game, and maybe it was more prevalent in previous generations because guys didn't swing as hard and pitchers didn't throw as hard. um, And they didn't know about spin rates and crafting pitches and doing all that stuff. And they didn't
1: have cutters,
0: right? I mean, the, hit, hit, hitting has never been harder than it is right now.
1: I mean, and, how are you going to place a cutter there, champ?
0: I, I, that's the point. And, and by the way, there used to be a thing, Derek, called a fastball count. <laughs> that, right. doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. Alex that's Reyes for a sport, 3-0 curveball to, to to Jesus Aguilar in game two of the series against the Marlins. Yeah,
1: that's 3-0 that's curveball.
0: You know, 25 years ago, that's a fastball down the middle 100 times out of 100.
1: Yeah. And,
0: and right now, even on 2-0 two, counts, 3-1 counts, Those are not fastball counts. Those are going to be, we're not giving up a home run count.
1: Jeter was the last of the inside out swings too.
0: Right, right. And again, they they exist now. There are still players that do those things, but there aren't as many as there used to be because, I mean, power pays. And again, you, you do somewhat have to sell out a little bit more on either location or pitch type with the difficulty of seeing it out of the hand now right with team with pitchers knowing how to tunnel their pitches better than ever because of all the technology available yeah. you can see you know it used to be you could see the difference coming out of the hand of a fastball and a breaking ball and yes you can sometimes still but not if a guy's doing it right if a guy's doing it right you you won't tell the difference till about halfway and by then it's too late
1: right i'm glad you brought up the calculus thing and let's conclude here because i think that you know one of the things that really struck me About, like, the new analytics and these new phrases, and something that I wanted to kind of deconstruct in this conversation is you know, I did take calculus, I enjoyed it, I relished it. And if somebody said, Would you like to go back? Like, the question that they posed you, would you go back and take high school calculus? My answer would be yes. And I probably will have to here to help my son do it. (laughs) Um, But I look forward to that. And, but I'm maybe not for the right reasons. Um, And maybe that's part of why you know, these numbers aren't so by people are dismissive of them. It's not just that it's different than the game they've grown up knowing for 40 years or 20 years. It's that it comes with an air of exclusivity that we are talking about it because we know it. Right. And we don't do a good job, media, baseball, whatever. We don't, we think of that as like currency. Like we know what these things mean. So you come to us. So we explain it. And that's not how we should do it. It's like me holding calculus over you. I know, I know why well, I yeah. used to know how yeah. to do it. So therefore that makes me some kind of guardian of exclusivity here. I could tell you how to For do sure. derivatives. I could tell you about Newton's law, th- things like that, you know, or I can, I can tell you, I can do things with math that you cannot, therefore I'm somehow ahead of you. and hopefully in this conversation we've done better to make these numbers more tangible. And that's a good reminder. We need to do that. I know that there are a lot of books out there. You know, Anthony cancer wrote a book trying to make advanced metrics, more tangible to fans. That's a great thing. Keith law has done the same thing. That's a great thing where we need to think about these numbers teams think about them as proprietary, right? right? Which is great, but proprietary too often is, you know, a euphemism, for exclusive or superior right they're not proprietary if everybody has them right you know you just create this illusion that they're exclusive or superior by talking about them as if somebody can't possibly understand them let's do a better job of talking to fans in a way that they can understand them let's talk about exit velocity not as Exit velo and you'll catch up later to it. Let's talk about it as this is what you used to think of as quick hands. This is what you used to think of as bat speed. And now we're putting a number on it and come along with us. Let's make the stats more inclusive so that people can readily handle them. And I think some ballparks are even doing this by putting launch angle, by putting exit velocity during BP. It makes it part of the normal conversation Mm -hmm. and we can better understand Okay, well, this is why that lineup is there. Okay, yeah. we well, understand why that guy's playing. Oh, we get to see, you know, hey, w- walks before runs for some of these guys, walks before runs. You want to yeah. know when Albert Pools, peak Albert Pools was about to go on a tear, the walks gave it away. Right. Right? That's predictive quality. So start right. enjoying it that way. So what's more inclusive with stats.
0: What's funny though is that go we could go I don't I mean we could go back to basically our childhoods, Derek, and probably before that people have never had an issue with grasping to pitcher velocity. Right. It's the same idea, right? Point. Well, but you know, when it came to the pitchers, like Nolan Ryan throwing hundred was like a national event. It's like, Oh my God, Nolan Ryan. I mean, we've been fascinated with pitcher velocity for as long as either of us have been alive. But yet when we talk about it from the hitter side, people are like, Ugh! like they, they show us the same things. A guy that throws a hundred isn't automatically going to be better than other people but he's got a lot of a ch- He got a better chance to be good. <laughs> he's got more room for error. Point. Yeah. So, you know, like Jordan Hicks throwing 102 doesn't mean he isn't going to give up hits, but it certainly increases his margin for error. And we understand that very well from the pitching side. And it's funny that there's been some resistance to accepting that on the hitting side.
1: It's a great point, Kevin. That's why I enjoy our conversations.
0: Whoop Thank whoop. you
1: so much, man. Kevin yeah, Wheeler. It of KMOX 1120, part of the Cardinals broadcast on the Cardinals radio network this year. I know you're excited for that. That means we'll see you more out at the ballpark, which of course brings us to the fact that we're going to see fans at the ballpark. There's going to be a traditional opening day as close as the Cardinals can get to it. We'll see Redcoats and Clydesdales and all of that. We're inching back towards normalcy and we're gravitating towards health and that sense of community and baseball can be such a big, important part of it, Kevin. And I'm looking forward to the role you'll play in that in, you know, on the radio broadcast. And I look forward to the challenge of being part of that again, uh, though this year, not having to drive everywhere. That's the hope (laughs) um, to, to cover the Cardinals. So this has been a great conversation, Kevin. You said many things that are going to uh, spawn conversations in later podcasts. I hope you'll be back.
0: I will. If Uh, I'm invited, I will
1: absolutely and i appreciate your help in bringing bpib back here for an opening edition of this season of bpib right in time for the cardinals home opener the best podcast in baseball is brought to you by closets by design get organized with closet by design in st louis update your closet garage office pantry and more call 1-800-BY-DESIGN that's one 800 E S I G N. the best podcast in baseball happy to be back thank you so much for everybody's notes We spent this podcast talking mostly about patience, how much patience should fans have for the Cardinals? Well, I appreciate all the patience that people showed me as we sorted through sort of some new assignments, some things that we're trying to do at stltoday.com and waited for this new episode of BPIB. So thank you, everyone. Again, um, the listeners make this podcast possible. Because the listeners make the sponsorships possible, so rate, review, subscribe, all the usual. You can find all the constant Cardinals coverage at STLToday.com, including more videos, including the videos of Kevin and I talking. If you want to see yeah. uh, my office fall apart upon my first day <laughs> returning. So, Kevin, thanks again. Um, look Anytime. forward to uh, talking to you again. Um, we'll just we'll just have you a regular guest on here. We'll just riff for an hour on things that we didn't expect to talk about. I'm in. For Kevin Wheeler, KMOX 1120 AM. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Eric Gould. This has been the best podcast in baseball. Happy New Year, everyone! Look forward to Opening Day. Talk to you soon. I'm out of practice, man. I forgot I like how to close, how to close them.
0: It's the way to go. It's okay. It's the beauty about editing, right?
1: No kidding. If I remember how to edit, too, I just I I needed a closer. That's what it is. I I'm, I. I'm more of, I was, this was more of a middle relief podcast for me. I was more middle. Couldn't start, couldn't close, but was good in the middle.
0: (laughs) Got some strikeouts.